So I want to start today's episode with a passage that I read in the book, The Parents Were Meant to Be by Richard Weisbord. I, I think I'm saying that name right, but we'll just go with that. And he says, as much as parents and coaches harp on sports being just a game, our enjoyment from it comes from the fact that it is not, in fact, just a game. It's an arena where we enact rituals with deep psychological meaning and deal with all sorts of inner conflict. Later on in the chapter, he goes on to say, when parents treat sports as simply a game, they can rob children of sports moral power. Conversely, when parents take sports as a true measure of their child's worth or capacities, or their worth, or their town's worth, they are not creating for children the opportunity to master conflict or develop understanding. They are introducing real conflicts that impair children's ability to value others and impede children's capacity for moral learning. They are turning sports into a false proving ground, setting children up for a pseudo sense of mastery and undermining their role as moral mentors. Now, this passage challenged me last month when I read it. It gave me new insight in this polarity that exists in sports, especially for us as transformational leaders who want to create a positive experience and develop people through our sport while being not just competitive, but striving for championships. There have been so many times where I have tried to downplay the significance of the game with my players, even the coaches I support, or, or with myself. And the truth is the game does matter beyond it just being a game. It's not just a game. And so how we navigate the relationship between competition and recreation, playing to win and trusting the process, that's what we're going to discuss in today's episode. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm your host, JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. The mission of this podcast is to help you become a better leader and build a better culture. In addition to this podcast, I'm the founder of TOC, which provides one-on-one -on -one coaching and consulting for leaders. Learn more about us at tocculture.com. This episode is brought to you by the TOC newsletter. Every Thursday, our newsletter includes two things you don't want to miss out on. Firstly, the notes to that week's podcast episode. Whether you're listening while driving the car, out for a run, or doing the dishes, we don't want you to miss the biggest takeaways from each episode. Secondly, each newsletter is a short article from myself or Nate on leadership and culture. These articles are designed to inspire, encourage, and provide practical insights into leadership and culture building. Our content is a perfect fit for anyone who wants to stay up to date with the latest trends and insights in culture building. You can subscribe to the newsletter at tocculture.com or by clicking on the link in the details of each episode. Now to start our conversation today, we wanna to share a short clip from a press conference a few weeks ago when arguably the best player in the NBA, Giannis of the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, was being interviewed after they lost in the first round of the NBA playoffs. Many of you have probably already heard it or have at least heard people talking about it. And it's the perfect piece for us to reflect on the conflict that exists within ourselves and society around competition and winning. I just asked Bud the exact same question, but I'm curious for you. Do you view this season as a failure? Oh, my God. Uh, okay, because I'm not that up. You asked me the same question last year, Eric. Okay. Uh, do you get do you get a promotion every year on your job? No, right? So every year you work is a failure. Yes or no? No. Every, every year you work, you work towards something, towards a goal. 
right, which is to get a promotion, to be able to uh, take care of your family, to be able, I don't know, um, provide a house for them or take care of your parents. You work towards a goal. It's not a failure. It's steps to success. You know, and if you've never, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to make it personal. So, there's always steps to it. You know, um, Michael Jordan played 15 years, won six championship. The other nine years was a failure. That's what you're telling me. No, I'm asking you a question. Yes or no? Okay, exactly. So why are you asking me that question? It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. You know, there's good days, bad days. Some days, some days you are able to uh, be successful. Some days you're not. Some days it's your turn. Some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Some other other people's gonna win. And this year, somebody else is gonna win. Similar as that. We're gonna come back next year. Try to be better. Try to build good habits. Try to um, play better. Not have a 10-day stretch with uh, playing bad basketball. You know, and hopefully we can win a championship. So 50 years from 1971 to 2021 that we didn't win a championship, it was 50 years of failures. No, it was not. It was steps to it, you know, and we were able to win one. Hopefully we can win another one. You know, I, sorry that I didn't want to make it personal because you asked me the same question last year, and uh, last year I wasn't in the, in the uh, right um, mind space to answer the question back, but I remember it. Anytime a player or a coach of the magnitude of, of Giannis here takes a stand on his relationship with winning and losing and failure and success, and it gets passed around on social media, JP, we start to see the best and worst of what Coach Twitter has to offer. And predictably so, the reaction to kind of this answer from Giannis following their upset in the opening round of the NBA playoffs, you have lots of people celebrating an example of a healthy approach or what they would say is a healthy approach to failure or to losing, that it matters, but it's not the most important thing, that it's part of the process of becoming successful is enduring some failure. And is that really failure at all? And of course, on the other side, you have plenty of voices that are criticizing Giannis saying, this is the reason why they failed, because it doesn't matter enough, because he's not competitive enough that Michael Jordan would never stand at the podium after losing in the NBA playoffs and say, was it really a failure for us not to get to the finals, not to beat the Pistons? Of course he would say it was a failure. And people would argue that that is why he was so successful. And so here we are as coaching consultants and coaches ourselves trying to navigate this landscape that seems to be governed by two polar opposite approaches to competition. On the one hand, JP, there's a school of thought that says it's just a game. Let's enjoy the game and have fun with it. And on the other end is winning is all that matters. And what we want to talk about here today in the podcast is that there is a middle ground between the two where you can have a healthy approach to coaching your team and parenting your child in a sports experience where winning does matter, but maybe it's not the only thing. Yeah, Nate, not a year goes by where there's not a great example of these emotional reactions to people that oftentimes are demonstrating a healthy relationship with losing or even just good sportsmanship. I remember Monty Williams, you know, a few years before, you know, uh, I remember Monty Williams a couple of years back when they lost to the Bucks in game six of the NBA finals, he goes in the locker room to congratulate them. And 
you had one group of people that was like, wow, that's, you know, first class act, you know, what a, you know, what a great example of sportsmanship. And then you had these other people that were just outraged that he could do such a thing and how it showed a lack of competitiveness or a lack of drive. And I think what you're having is these, you know, people that feel like it has to be one or the other. They don't, they're almost in war with each other. You can't have this healthy balance, which they know we're going to work to get to at the end of this conversation of what that healthy balance looks like. But I think, you know, we need to explore why are people's reactions so strong? Why do they have such strong emotional reactions to this? And I think at the end of the day, it comes to this fear of the overuse. So if you have competitive and recreational, the people that maybe have a tendency to be more competitive, they're oftentimes more afraid of the overuses of recreational athletics, right? We're just here to have, it's just a game. We're just here to have fun. And those that are, have maybe a tendency just to want to enjoy the experience and not be as competitive, they're oftentimes afraid of the overuses of the competitive way. I mean, you think about those overuses and how sometimes actually horrifying they look like when, when it comes to competition, right? I mean, you can turn on the TV today and you can see the outrageous sports parent being up another parent or the referee or the coach being up the referee. I mean, it's just oftentimes competition, this overemphasis on competition is what gives sports a bad name, right? It becomes this thing that actually leads to adults acting like idiots and setting a horrible example for the young people themselves, as well as the overemphasis on competition becomes the greatest stress and anxiety for us as a coach, right? When we're only focused on winning and we're not winning, right? We start to make some poor decisions and we start to really lose the joy and fulfillment out of what obviously brings us the most joy in coaching, which is seeing our team improve, seeing us develop, seeing us grow and get better. Well, when we think about the the potential dangers of of this overly competitive approach to sport, whether it's parents, coaches, or players themselves, I mean, we could go on and on, JP, about the mental health effects of that, the the players that get their identity caught up in their jump shot, the coaches who identify only with their win-loss percentage, the parent living vicariously through the child. I mean, there's many, many pitfalls and potholes here that can be difficult to navigate if competing and winning is the only thing that matters. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's also a school of thought that if the game doesn't matter, if the outcome doesn't matter, if the score doesn't matter, if it's really just a game, we're just out here to have fun, there's a lot that can be missed from an approach like that as well. Without stakes in the game, players don't learn to face the pressure of winning or losing or making a play with the game on the line. They don't learn how to deal with disappointment and losing a game that really did matter in the standings or it mattered in the postseason or it mattered to the, the community. When you start to see state legislatures like North Carolina debating a bill that would make it illegal to give out a participation trophy, you have to wonder why. And maybe it's because the fear is that kids aren't learning how to earn what they deserve when they're just handed a trophy because they paid a registration fee at a nine-year-old softball tournament. And so to discount competition completely also disadvantages the child in some ways as well. Yeah. And sometimes the effects of these overuses can be very similar. For instance, poor performance. So much emphasis on winning will, you know, when it comes to the mental game, we understand that it, like if it's all you care about, it creates so much pressure. It actually doesn't help you to perform. 
in most cases. Um, all the research would show that. At the same time, it can lead to poor performance on the other side where the players lack ambition, they lack drive, they lack motivation to go out there and to win the game. And so it's trying to find that healthy balance. I remember a few years ago when I was coaching in the Irish Super League, um, the semi-pro league here in Ireland, and my players who are ranging from the ages of 18 to 32 or 33 didn't want the competitive cauldron, right? They didn't, they were afraid of that. And when I was, we were talking about that in our conversations with the leaders and the captains, it was like, well, you know, we think it could, you know, really be a divider within the team. And I get that. I get that, how that could be the effect. But in my mind, I was like, I have to find a way to help them overcome that. Because right now, it's not necessarily about doing it so I can have the cauldron because that's what I wanted to do with the team. It was like, we didn't compete in practice. We had an unhealthy relationship with competition. We wanted it to be recreational with each other. But on Friday and Saturday, where we played our game, we had to turn it on and compete and win. I'm like, well, we can't, we, we had to be able to compete in a healthy way in practice. And so you had this recreational mindset when it came to inter-practice play. But then the expectation was we got to win every night on the weekends. And so I think the concern from a lot of people is actually very real because if you talk to a lot of coaches, which I do, they often describe their team as lacking this competitive fire. They may even get along really well, but they just don't have that competitive desire to go out there and win and compete, whether it's against each other in practices or even sometimes when it comes to the game day. And so I think it's really important that we find that middle ground, that third way could be like Giannis and recognize that it's just a game and that losing games is just a part of the process of growth, development, and even a team coming together. So I think, JP, most of us, if we just sat down and spent a little bit of time reflecting here, would acknowledge that, yeah, there's benefit to having a healthy approach, that there is an aspect to this, that it's just a game. And there's benefit to having a competitive part of it, which is we want to be driving toward success and toward winning. And there's lots of good reasons for that. I think the reason we're having this conversation is because it's very difficult to walk in that middle ground. And there's lots of reasons for that as well. I mean, if you think about this continuum, let's take, for example, the life cycle of an athlete. My daughter just started playing softball and basketball this year as a nine-year-old. It would be foolish for our approach to be winning is all that matters or driving really hard toward the outcomes of games that they're just starting to experience for the first time. They're just starting to learn the sport. So it can be difficult, for example, because of the age and stage of our athletes. We're probably going to be positioned differently coaching a 9U softball team or a, a seventh grade girls basketball team than we would be coaching the Milwaukee Bucks in the NBA playoffs. Obviously, they're going to lean more at the professional level toward a competitive approach. And we might lean more with younger players toward a participation approach because we want players to continue to want to learn and explore the game, maybe without the worrying about the consequences of winning and losing. It's also hard for coaches because we're dealing with parents and players and administrators that are all over the spectrum. You know, you may have administrators that were former coaches that won a lot when they were coaching, that think they know a lot about your game or what's really important. And so there may be pressure, you know, from above to win, you know, that that's 
that's more important than anything else. And you may have players that, you know, come out for your sport because they really want to be around their friends and they'll work hard and they enjoy it. But the social aspect is what motivates them. And maybe they're turned off by too much pressure on goals and outcomes. And yet they're playing alongside the kid that's a basketball first kid or, you know, whatever your sport might be, whose dream has always been to make it to the state tournament, who's motivated by the competition. And here we are as coaches in the middle of all of these sort of swirling approaches and more trying to figure out how to navigate a healthy way forward. It can be very, very difficult. Yeah. Every situation is so unique and it's not a simple answer. I mean, like Dusty may shared in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, he calls me, he tells me we're not winning as much as we, you know, as I think we should be winning. I'm starting to maybe doubt whether we can win coaching this way. I can't just say, well, keep it up, man. It's all right. You know, it's just a game, you know, <laughs> like that doesn't work. And, and I know it's a lot different, but I mean, it still brings me to the same place of how do we approach it when my seven-year-old plays in her first tennis tournament, you know, very low key type of event, not a high, like not a lot of pressure. It's just go out there, have some fun, but we're going to keep score. I thought it was a pretty healthy environment, but she goes out and loses four, four matches. And every time she comes off, she's like, I'm not winning. I'm not scoring points. And she's really disappointed. You know what? At the end of the day, honestly, I'm like, it doesn't feel all right just to be like, it's okay, honey, just as long as you're having fun. Like she's clearly not having fun losing, right? She's experiencing losing for the first time in her life. And I feel like I have to navigate that situation with her in a healthy way. And I think that's that's really uncomfortable place to be as a parent, you know? So whether you're a parent or a coach or an administrator, you know, it's how do you navigate that? When you look at your own coaching, Nate, what's most uncomfortable for you in that situation when you're trying to navigate both comp competition and recreation? Well, JP, I feel like if I were to answer that question, just for where I'm at right now at Mount Vernon, my biggest fear is that the needle would go go too far to the competitive side. And I knew this a little bit about just the culture of Mount Vernon and our school and our athletic program coming in that that outcomes are really, really important. You know, I remember in the interview process when we were interviewing to fill another head coaching position and I was on the committee, you know, our principal telling an applicant, look, it's it's great to want to teach kids life lessons and we think that's really important. But at the end of the day, like you can't do that if you go three and 19 too many times in a row. You know, so there, there's a certain amount of life lessons are important and character is important and the experience is important. But the message is really clear. Winning is still the most important. It's the way that you keep your job to be able to do those things. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It's just a matter of fact in terms of where our athletic programs are at. So my biggest concern with my team is that that doesn't become a detriment to our performance, to our potential, or to our success. So, so as we mentioned before, if kids start to you know struggle with their identity being too wrapped up in their performance, or their you know emotional ups and downs, their anxieties, um, their sense of worth you know starts to become corrupted because of the outcome of a basketball game, like that doesn't seem very healthy to me, and so. I'm trying to just make sure that we don't cross a red line here that becomes a detriment to us as people, despite the fact that we're trying to win. What I've learned as I've been here, because I would naturally shade a little bit more to the other end of the spectrum of trying to 
create a great experience and culture. And that's the thing that really matters. And who we become out of this is more important than what we earn while we're in it. Um, is that that's not as motivating here as it was in other places where I've coached. And so I've had to make an adjustment for myself to move a little bit toward the competitive side, even if that isn't necessarily my nature, to fit my context a little bit better. Yeah, Nate, I think I share those same fears, but I've also started to have another fear that's been growing recently, which is more around the overuses of recreational athletics where not just everybody gets a trophy in the participation or we don't keep score at certain ages, but even some of the weird messaging that we sometimes give athletes, not just at the young ages, but at the high school and collegiate levels, where you see parents and even co maybe a coach might say, hey, it doesn't matter that we lost. Hey, head up, don't worry about it. But during the game itself, they had an emotional response to losing in the game that said, it does matter. In fact, it's the only thing that matters. Or I even see with parents, you know, they might with their son or daughter, pull them aside and say, Hey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, because we don't want them to feel bad after a loss, which when you lose, it's okay to feel bad, right? Like some of those feelings are just natural, but we try to save them from those feelings. At the same time, we try to blame it on the coach or their teammates or, you know, those type of things are, ah, you know, the other team is just too, you know, too good. Instead of helping them to maybe work through those feelings and take some sort of personal responsibility for how they might've contributed to the loss, right? So I think there's a lot of things that we're doing to save our kids from the experience of losing games, right? Um, and we're missing out all these opportunities to help them work through that in a healthy way. And so that's become a, become a growing fear of mine as we're seeing today's generation, you know, gen, Generation Z, struggle more and more with setback, failure, and adversity. Well, we could do a whole podcast episode, JP, on delivering mixed messages as parents and coaches that, you know, telling our kids that we love to watch them play and then have the mask after the game, then why were you on your phone during the game the whole time? You know, but nevertheless. <laughs> so one of the hard parts here, you know, was trying to figure out how do we position winning as a thing that is important without necessarily making it the most important thing. And that's, you know, a challenge, as you said, with with just our the generation that we're working with here, that it feels like, and I think this is reinforced in society and on social media, that once you start leaning into competition, it's like a cliff. You just fall off into this, well, it's the only thing that matters, good or bad. And so there, there's a nuance there. There's a bit of an art there in coaching to try to say, look, we're trying to win games. I mean, that's our approach at Mount Vernon. That's what we tell kids in our meetings. That's why we watch the film and that's why we lift the weights and that's why we practice as much as we do. We're trying to win games. Winning is important. Winning is the end goal. But, asterisks, it's not the most important thing. And I, I think for me, one thing I think that helps ground me a little bit is, you know, it's almost like the stacking exercises that we do with our, our coaches. If both of those things are important, let's say winning and character development or culture or the relationships or the experience, if you ask me if I could only have one, I would still lean toward the idea that relationships and social emotional development and all those things are the important thing in the pursuit of winning, right? And I don't know even that you can develop character in the same way without saying we have a goal here without saying we have an end in mind, without putting ourselves out there a little bit and saying, 
yeah, we'd like to get to the state tournament this year. That's a dream. We were close last year, and that's where we want to go. And we understand maybe that sets us up for disappointment if we don't make it at the end of next year. But in the process of chasing that dream, of pursuing that goal, of acknowledging that it matters, this is where resilience now becomes a requisite. This is where we have to learn how to deal with disappointment because we've identified something that really matters, right? And that's where we can start to grow some of those skills. And that's because at the end of the day, winning is the bottom line. Just like for business, they have to make money, right? To like to be able to, like you said there, to be able to impact lives, to have credibility as a coach, you have to win at least a little bit some of the time, especially if people feel like you have the pieces out there or you can lose credibility pretty quickly and then you don't have the opportunity to do what is most important to you. Now, I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some ways that you're approaching this, I'm approaching this as parents, as coaches, and some of our recommendations for administrators. And um, I will just share kind of a, a few right off the bat that just are more recent in my experience in youth coaching, for instance, I've been coaching under eight football here in Ireland for my daughter's team. And up until about three weeks ago, oftentimes we would play a match and we don't keep score. And they play typically three or four matches in, in a 15 minute period against different teams. They mix them up and it's a great, a great experience. But my daughter was like, you know, you know, did we win today? You know, we'd win the game. Like she'd want to know and other girls would ask. And I would typically go, eh, it doesn't matter. You know, like doesn't matter. You know, I've started naturally just to keep score a little bit and be like, Hey, yeah, we won the first game three, one lost the second game or, you know, I'll just, I'll give them the score of the game, but then I'll follow that up with a question of, you know, how'd you feel you played? what did you think you did? Well, you know, what'd your teammates do well today? You know, what might you work on? Like I'm asking other questions, right? We're not resting on that. We're not focusing on that one experience there. We're trying to get them to acknowledge, yeah, it stinks, we lost, or we won, it's great. But really what we're about here is development. And I think just as long as I'm not getting caught up in the score, <laughs> the parents aren't getting caught up in the score, and everyone is focusing on development and participation and a great experience, this is a great way to start early on to give them an experience of, of recognizing that losing that game is not failure. It's not final. It's not something to get really upset about. Okay. We want to win. We want, you know, at the same time, we want to get better. And so it's just trying to find little ways to introduce competition. So it's not all of a sudden they go to under tens or whatever it is. And all of a sudden it's like, we're keeping score. And they've never had an experience of losing a game. And so what I'm really trying to do is try to slowly introduce them to those experiences. This episode is brought to you by my latest book, The Culture System, A Proven Process for Creating an Extraordinary Team Culture. It's been endorsed by many exceptional leaders and coaches, one of those being 2022 MBA Coach of the Year, Monty Williams, who called it a special book with inspiring stories, applicable strategies, and a proven model for developing team culture. This book is more than just a collection of practical tools for leaders. It teaches a proven framework that some of the world's best organizations and teams use. It's packed with real-life examples and case studies that show you how these ideas can be implemented in any context. Whether you're a coach, manager, or leader, you'll find invaluable insights to help you build the culture you want. Don't miss out on this opportunity to transform your team. Visit MyCultureSystem.com to learn more about the book or 
You can get your copy on Amazon or Audible today. So I think for myself, JP, when I think about why I lean a little bit more toward a participation, it's just a game approach is because I, I remember a story I've seen sort of some of the damages and I think it's my PTSD probably kicks in a little bit thinking back to a, a conversation I had with a parent at a previous stop. Okay. And they were complaining about how we don't win enough and we, you know, how could this team lose in JV and how could this team lose in varsity when all through their career, all the way back to when they started in third grade, they've always won. They've always won. They've always won. Now they come to play for me and they can't win. So clearly the only difference between playing club ball in eighth grade and playing varsity basketball is that I was the coach. And so, you know, I get criticized for that and blah, blah, blah. So I react to that. Right. And now I'm starting to coach my daughter's nine U basketball team. And I'm thinking, I want to insulate us from something like that, where winning becomes, you know, just this lens that the world doesn't make any rational sense anymore. So what that's looked like is we don't do a lot of competitive things in our youth camps or our youth practices with my daughter's team, for example, because I just don't want them to overvalue winning and losing. But what surprised me is some of the feedback that I get from my daughter after we go and play in a tournament or we come out of a practice and she says, you know, we asked, did you have fun? Oh, yeah, it was fun, but we lost all our games. And that mattered to them. And the first tournament they won, they came home with this little plastic trophy about the you know, size of a, I don't know, a walnut, you know, and now it's prominently displayed on our shelf at home, not because I care about it as the coach, but because Adelaide, our nine-year-old, was really proud of the fact that they won. And that surprised me that because... I always assume that this came from the whacked out parents or this came from society, but they're not on social media, right? Their parents aren't that involved yet in terms of what winning and losing and thinking about it. It comes from their desire, as you said, to want to know where they're at and want to win. And so as the result of that, we've started doing a little bit more competitive things. And then here's what we found, JP, is that when we started saying, okay, everybody that makes 10 layups in two minutes is a winner and everybody else is a loser, or we play a three-on-three game and we have winners and losers, what happens to the losers? They blame the officiating. (laughs) Or right away, they make excuses about the teams weren't fair or, you know, whatever it might be, right? And so I think that's where I maybe have missed the boat a little bit because winning and losing now creates an opportunity for me to help them frame unequal teams. Or you have four and we have three or the officiating that can sometimes be inconsistent, or whatever it might be. Maybe the other team got lucky, you know, whatever it is. And so it does help them to process some of those things in ways that I couldn't have done before when I was just trying to avoid winning and losing so that they don't turn into crazy people when they're in high school. Those are great examples. And it, I mean, similar practice I ran there for the under eights, you know, it was like, I was trying to create a little competition on some of their shooting on goals. and so. We had multiple games. And one way I like to do this in a healthy way is have a lot of games where almost everyone's getting a chance to win once, but some people might obviously get to three wins or whatever. We're going to more. And then there's that moment where it's like, hey, what do we do when we win? What do we do when we lose? And and we work and teach those things. Another great moment I mentioned earlier in the podcast was like my daughter lost those four or five matches of tennis and she'd come off and she'd be frustrated. And she'd say, dad, I'm losing everything. I'd say, well, do you want any pointers? Do you want any tips? And she'd say no. And I'd say, okay, all right. Well, just keep giving it your best out there. And at the end of that experience of losing four or five tennis matches, 
right? And I'll be honest with you, she's a horrible tennis player, right? Um, she's been going to tennis once a week and probably these other kids are going, you know, two, three times a week. Um, I just, you know, she walked off. I said, how are you feeling? She says, that's okay. I said, well, how are you feeling about tennis? Do you still want to keep going with it? She goes, yeah, I like it. I was like, okay, feeling pretty down about it. You know, one thing you could do is I could get you another class on, on the Mondays to go work on it if you want to keep getting better, right? Don't have to do it. She said, oh, I'd love to do that. And so she, she had the option. It was all ball in her court, right? To step up and maybe do a little bit to start working on it because she doesn't like losing, right? And I think it's a trying to navigate. I don't know if that was the perfect way to handle that, but I definitely feel better about that than saying, hey, honey, it's okay. Winning doesn't matter. They shouldn't be keeping score. Or I pull her out of that because she feels bad from that experience. Or I complained to the administrators. They didn't set it up a way that she could win, at least win one game. Here's a valuable experience for her. And I'm just trying to walk with them through that experience and teach her how to lose and also teach her how to win. When she has those moments where she does well and she's a great sport about it, you know, these are the moments that I think I'm really trying to be intentional about, not just throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is, oh, if we keep score, everyone's going to go absolutely ballistic crazy. So that brings to mind, JP, a similar conversation that I had with with Adelaide after one of our tournaments here where, again, she's frustrated that we went 0-3, didn't win any games, and says that her teammates, they feel embarrassed by that or they they want to win, you know, what have you. And I asked Adelaide, I said, do you think we would do something different if we were really trying to win the game more than anything else? And she sat there and she thought a little bit about it and she said, well, I might play Lennox more because she can make a layup. <laughs> and I thought, that's right. And that was the conversation that we had with, with my daughter was when we're on the court, we're trying to do everything we can to score points and keep the other team from scoring points. But more importantly, we're trying to give everybody a chance to experience the game, regardless of where their skills are at right now as eight and nine-year-olds. And so we could play, quote unquote, our better players or our bigger players or our more skilled players more, and that would give us a better chance to win the game. But that's not ultimately the goal of this team, while it is the goal of our varsity team. So when she watches our older kids play in high school, we are playing the best players. We are starting the same five. We do have a limited rotation, but the context is different. What I learned in that conversation with Adelaide was that's not something we ever talked about as a team of nine-year-olds. I never sat them down and said, hey, guys, you know, not that I would just point out the five players we would play if we were trying to win. But to get them to understand we're taking turns playing because we want everybody to have a chance to enjoy the game. And so as I go into the second year of kind of coaching some of these youth teams, I think that's instructive to have those conversations with whatever level team you're coaching. You know, at the varsity level, I think there's merit there in talking about how we're leaning more toward a competitive approach because of X, Y, and Z. And here's what that looks like. I just didn't do that with our younger kids. And I think that left them to try to figure it out on their own to try to navigate between wanting to win and hanging out with their friends. And the more that we can help them to process that, frame that and give them language for that and understanding for it, I think the more likely it is that we find that sweet spot in between where we're benefiting from both approaches. And I think, you know, as you think about older groups as well, too, because we got to speak to some of that. I've had a lot of coaches reach out since, you know, the Anson Dorrance episodes dropped, asking about the competitive cauldron. 
And their fear is, oh, I could never do that with my team. It would be too divisive. And my thing is that the problem necessarily isn't you can't use the cauldron. It's why you can't. Like you have a deeper problem with your team that they can't work through that in a healthy way. And we have to find ways to maybe introduce more competition within practice because they maybe haven't had those scaffolding type experiences when they're younger to understand how to compete in a healthy way in practice. And so many of the things that we try to work on with teams is defining competition, defining what it means to be competitive and how it's about, and especially in a practice setting, getting, pushing each other, challenging each other, preparing for the game on the Friday or the Saturday. I think those types of conversations are ones we can't avoid with our players. I'm curious for you, what are some of the things that you're doing with your team to be experiencing both competitiveness and recreation? Well, I think for us, JP, you know, so much of it is the conversations that we're having. You know, on the one hand, we're asking, what does matter? You know, when we have our parent meeting and we talk about our goals for the season, we'd like to get there, you know, or I don't think we're going to apologize for that in this coming year. But at the same time, we're also asking, what if we don't get there? What still adds value and meaning to our season if we don't make it to the state tournament? And so, you know, we're getting kids to think about what they contribute to the team as a competitor, you know, when they're working to earn playing time or a starting position or what they do on the floor. But also, how do they affect our environment? How are they contributing and building relationships? What value do they bring even when they're not in a place to directly affect the competitive outcome of a game. So I think we try to speak both languages, so to speak, uh, you know, in terms of valuing winning, but also talking about what else do we value. And when we invest time and energy, you know, we're doing team building and one-on-ones and, you know, team bonding nights and things like that. We are trying to create a great experience for everyone because we do believe that that affects performance. And at the same time, we're not shying away from talking about how playing time is earned, winning and losing is it's earned, and that we have to work towards something. And we're going to we're going to go for it. We're going to say that winning matters. But again, it's all couched with this idea that it's still not the most important thing. And I think, you know, after doing our second round or our second year of exit interviews here, I think our players have appreciated that we've found that sweet spot, maybe in comparison with some of their other experiences, that they feel like we get better, that we're driving towards a goal. But at the same time, there's an understanding that, yeah, they got other things going on in their life, that their relationships matter too, that the experience matters too. Um, And we've been really fortunate, I guess, that we've found a sweet spot for our program right now. Yeah. And those conversations, they are so critical to help our players understand how competition and recreation, they aren't mutually exclusive, but they're actually mutually like beneficial. When we have that great experience, it can help us to be more competitive. But when we focus only on one or the other, it will hurt us in the long term. It'll hurt our experience and it will hurt our performance. One thing that I think is really important to mention here is regardless of what level you coach at, whether you're youth level, high school, collegiate, pro, it doesn't matter. What really matters is our example in this. Let me explain. I used to love John Wooden, and John Wooden had a thing at UCLA where he never talked about winning. And so I said, okay, he's not talking about winning 
because he's trying to focus on their character and doing things the right way. He's a transformational coach and he's trying to keep pressure off them. And so I never talked about winning as a coach, never talked about it. Now, the problem is it's not what I say, it's how I act. And the way that I acted told my team that I cared about winning. And that it was the most important thing to me because when we won, I was happy-ish. And when we lost, I was miserable. And they felt that. And it reminds me of my conversation with Dave Brandt, who's now at Bucknell. He was at Messiah. When he was at Messiah, he said, we're going to be perennial national champions here. He said, we're going to win here. He talked about winning. And they won a lot. They won seven national championships, I believe, when he was there in a 10-year span. And at the same time, he said, it's not the only thing. What matters most is this. So winning was the bottom line. But their purpose, right, was going to be something greater than that. And it was about who they were becoming. The vision was to become the best team to play for in the country. Not to be the best team in the country, to be the best team to play for in the country. But more important than all the things that Dave Brandt said was the way that Dave Brandt led with that team how he acted towards his team, how he treated his players, how he responded to adversity, to losing, to mistakes. That's the message his players really heard. And he could have not talked about winning like John Wooden, or he could have talked about winning. It really doesn't matter. It's more about how he responds to losing and winning and when things don't go his way. And so for us as coaches, sometimes we, Worry, should we talk about winning? Should we not talk about winning? Should we talk about the importance of this game? Should we not talk about it? And it really doesn't matter. It matters way more how we make our players feel. And the last thing I would leave coaches with, JP, is that your context really matters. I think we have to do some reflection and think about where do I fall if this is a continuum between a competitive end and the participation experiential end? What do I naturally lean toward a little bit more and why? I think that's great self-awareness. I think that's great learning and reflection. But at the same time, every team is different and every program is different. I've been in programs where when we focused on the experience and the relationships more, sort of taking it, it's just a game approach, that's unlocked our ability to perform better on the court. Less pressure, less anxiety, less worry about winning and losing or rankings or any of that stuff. When we focused on the experience, we were really, really good because we played free. And I've been in programs like where I'm at now, where we're driven more by outcome. We're driven more by the idea of winning. And so we have to lean into that a little bit more. They don't get as much motivation from saying, you know, hey, let's create a great experience and see what happens. Or let's keep playing our best at the end of the year so that this thing can keep going. You know, we can keep having this experience. There's something to be said for, we want to be holding up the banner at the end of the year. And so I've had to adjust, even though I lean a little bit more in one way, I've had to adjust my coaching with the last couple of teams because of that. And I think that can change year in and year out as different players come in with different parents, administrators change. You just have to, one, be aware of where you're at and why, and two, be really conscious of what your context and environment is and be willing to, to change or adapt to best equip them to be successful. So I think it's really important, regardless of the level that we coach at, that we set boundaries. So for instance, in a youth underage level, that could be every player should get to play equal time and they should all get to play a variety of positions on the field. 
but you do your best to win within those boundaries. I remember six years ago, I was helping out at our church uh, by coaching, and the league did not have a rule that, you know, for the fourth grade team that I volunteered to help out with, they did not have a, a rule around playing time. But I still self-imposed a rule that every kid would get to play a quarter in the first half and half of the third quarter. But the fourth quarter, I was going to play the people who gave us the best chance you know, to be competitive, to win. And I communicated this to the players and the parents and why we were doing that. Because it was about the experience and about development. Now, here's the thing. We didn't win a game all year. Even if I hadn't imposed that rule, though, to be honest, we were probably the most unathletic, least talented, and least competitive uh, group of fourth grade boys ever assembled on a basketball court. Um, at, at best, you know, we might have won one game, but we probably wouldn't have won a game. But regardless, I wasn't going to sacrifice their experience and development in the pursuit of winning a basketball game at that age, especially. But what does this look at the more competitive levels? Like, let's even actually talk about the pro and senior levels. I remember three years ago when I was coaching a first league pro women's basketball team in Ireland, the team and I sat down at the beginning of the year and we were setting some standards. And the players, the players created the standard that essentially if a player was to be toxic to the culture or to do something severely unacceptable, like not attend a practice without a good reason for missing, that the player shouldn't play in the game that weekend, even if it cost us the game. And we were very explicit about, you know, landing at that place because they recognized the long term, it was going to be more beneficial for the culture and they didn't just want to win with talent. They wanted to win the right way, doing things the right way. Another example we're sharing is I remember observing a Phoenix Suns practice back in September of 2021 after they had lost the NBA Finals to the Milwaukee Bucks. And I was talking with some of the coaches after the practice and one assistant coach made a comment that stuck with me. He said, obviously after making it to the, to the NBA Finals and losing the expectations of the fans and even of themselves were to win an NBA championship next year. But in that pursuit, he said, we're not gonna be miserable. We want to enjoy that journey, journey with each other and we wanna have balance in our, in our life. So." While winning an NBA championship was the priority, they set boundaries as coaches in their work-life balance. So on, on non-game days, they started their first meeting at 9 a.m. and were mostly at the door around 3 p.m. And they held themselves to a standard as to the character of the players they brought in and what they did and did not tolerate in regards to player and coach behaviors. Now, I know they didn't win it in 2022. They didn't win the NBA championship. But they did have the best record in the NBA that season. They still had a lot of success doing things the right way. I want to give one more example of a professional coach who I feel has discovered this third way of operating where they are both competitive and enjoying the experience. And that's Joe Madden, who won a World Series with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and the Chicago Cubs. As Joe says in his very recent book, The Book of Joe, he says, I've been wanting to do this since I was six. I can't forget why I am here. And so he has this principle in his life and for his team. Don't ever permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. Don't ever permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure. And what he does is he actually has that principle on top of his game card. So he's probably looking at it a hundred times a game. And so little reminders like that for you as a coach or maybe even for your team by putting something on the walls of your locker room 
they could be great anchors for you and your team when you potentially might lose your way. Which brings me to my final thing I want to just share with you. I've actually kind of created a four-step action plan for myself and for other coaches. Uh, Feel free to use this if you want. First thing is we need to be able to acknowledge the pressure to win, the ambition, the craving to win. We just need to notice it in ourselves and in others, our players. Just notice it. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Now, this is the power of journaling and mindfulness practice in our lives because it helps us to become more aware of that craving, that ambition. Secondly, we need to honor that ambition, that desire or craving to win. And we honor it by giving our very best effort collectively. That's truly competing. It's striving together for excellence. The word competing actually comes from the Latin word competere, which means to strive together. So acknowledge the drive. Secondly, honor the drive by giving our best. So first, acknowledge the drive. And secondly, honor the drive by giving your best. Thirdly, remember your purpose for playing or coaching. Even Joe Madden, at the highest level of baseball, his joy is in the day-to-day, not the achievement not in the winning of World Series. He has loved baseball since he was a boy, and so he comes back to that joy and just love of the game. For Nate, it's about helping his athletes to become better people like so many other coaches out there. So remember your purpose, whether that's for fun, that's connection, joy, camaraderie, or just even like camaraderie with teammates. Lastly, we have to accept. We have to accept what we can't control, which is the result. It's never 100% within our control. And we have to accept that result, whatever it may be, that it doesn't define us as a human being, even though it may define us as a coach. Like, honestly, it may define your legacy as a coach or an athlete. Tom Brady is considered the GOAT in football because he won seven Super Bowls, not because of his character. Michael Jordan is considered the GOAT of basketball because of his six NBA championships, not because of his character. And when people look back and measure Giannis against Michael Jordan, they will measure them by championships primarily. But Giannis's family, his true friends, and even his teammates, they're going to measure his legacy by who he was as a person. And so we can't forget this. The losses, they don't say anything about us as a person, as a human being. But how we handle the losses, that says a lot. So how do we become a true competitor? We acknowledge the ambition. We honor it with effort. We, we remember our purpose for playing or coaching. And then lastly, we accept that the result, it hurts. It's painful, but it's not 100% within our control and it doesn't define our value as a person. And so when you do have that loss, the ambition or craving may actually even grow, but you just repeat that cycle. You acknowledge it, keep giving your best while remembering your purpose and continuing to accept what is outside of your control. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it. Please share it with some coaches out there that might need to hear this message as well as leave us a review at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss some amazing episodes that are coming up here in the next few months.